Namaste. So as part of the series on collected works of the mother, today we take up this uh, very interesting volume, uh, which is volume 3 of the collected works, also known as Conversations 1929 to 1931. And uh, in the collected works, we'll see it, it's also combined with mother's talks on the Dhammapad. So we'll take up Dhammapad in the next uh, session. But today we'll touch upon the first part. So why they are combined is also very interesting because if you see the conversations 1929 to 1931, they are the first uh, documented conversations of the mother. And the Dhammapad happens to be the last. They are the last of the talks she has given in the playground. <laughs> I don't know why somebody thought about combining the two, but whatever it is, it makes a good package because... Um, uh, why say that it is a very intuitive combination, uh, maybe counter logic, but very much intuitive because conversations of the mother 1929 to 31 is one single stopper for whoever wants to know about integral yoga in, in its different aspect sites. And uh, commentaries on the Dhammapad is one can say that it is like a first step, the basic requirement even to qualify for the integral yoga. That's how I look at it. And that was the purpose of Dhammapad, which we'll speak about um, as we go by and by. But this work, this volume 3 is very interesting from many accounts. One, it is the first, uh, as I said, documented conversation of the mother after she has taken charge of the ashram. Um, the one and only um, uh, I mean, uh, talks of the mother, conversation of the mother, apart from prayers and meditation, which Shurabindo has gone through and he has given comments and answers because it was printed and people asked questions. Uh, I think 30s it was printed, then 46 reprinted and people asked some questions and Shurabindo answered. All other conversations we'll see from volume 4 onwards start from 1951, 50 December to 51. So this is another unique conversation that way. And the third is, um, it has a very interesting background. The background is that, as we know that when the mother came finally to Pondicherry on 24th April 1920, uh, very few of us know that there was a third person accompanying her. I mean, apart from she and her husband. And that third person was someone mother had met uh, in 1916 when she had gone back to France and she was a British lady, a, an English woman, by the name of uh, Dorothy Hodson. And Shorabindo had given her the name. Uh, she, okay, she wanted to, she was going through a personal crisis. She had lost uh, her fiancé. And then she developed this feeling that all desire for a married life and all this went away from her somehow. And she met the mother, was deeply moved. And she asked mother, can I accompany you? So mother said, all right. So she accompanied the mother from 1916. So it's very interesting. And though she would uh, regard herself as someone who would just take care of the mother, but mother regarded her as her friend. So it is something, another very interesting, where I don't know of how many people, there are few whom she has called as a friend, but this is a friend who accompanied her from 1916 onwards. They went together to Tokyo, Japan, Kyoto and all these places. And when the mother was coming, she asked her, would you like to come along to Pondicherry? And she said, yes. 
So she was that close to the mother. When she comes here, Shubhendu gives her the name Vasavdatta. Now it means the offered one, somebody who has given himself. And so she used to take care of these small little details of mother's uh, outer life, till of course um, she she left her body in 1949. Then for a few years it was Chinmay who was from uh, Hyderabad Nawab's family. The name Chinmay was given by the uh, by Shurbindo, and she used to take care for a few years. Then she also went away. So that's a different story altogether. Then Vasudha band came. Then Kumud band toward the end. So, uh, why this is important with reference to this volume? So, uh, in 1926, 24th November, as we know, Shivendra withdrew into the background, and the mother was installed in the forefront, as well as in the human heart, I would say. So, in 1922 onwards, Shivendra would uh, often uh, halt while calling the mother's name, uh, and uh, it would be as if he is trying to say something else. And then he would uh, say Mira. Uh, he would uh, sometimes address as as Mira Devi. There are some letters where he uses the word Mira Devi, even M I R A. Uh, so some of the people may not be aware of this. And um, then, of course, we know that at one moment of the gods, <laughs> unnoted by history, as Nalina Nalnida says, he uttered the word Mother. Now this was a moment where everybody was surprised. Uh, the mother always inspired a kind of awe because she would hardly meet hardly speak she would largely remain in her room yet from all her actions people could get the sense that she is not at all an ordinary woman she is a great yogin and there are some people asked amrita even asked shurbindo that isn't she a great uh, yogin and shurbindo said yes but she doesn't give meditation And Shubhendra says, one day she will do. She will come out, moved by the divine love, and that will be a great day. But sometimes she would give meditations. Sometimes when people had questions, Shubhendra would send them to the mother. And from that time onwards, she had started sort of taking charge of the uh, ashram disciples, at least arranging things, taking care of things. and of course she was inwardly taking charge which was evident when mother fell very severely ill uh, twice uh, because she was just taking everybody's burden on herself so there is a whole history to it but when she was put in the forefront then it was uh, while many people uh, were struck with wonder but others some of the people revolted one reason for revolt was that well how can a french woman especially because pondicherry was ruled by the french and people were fighting the colonial rulers how could she become the mother of an ashram but at the same time they had great reverence for shurbind and admiration they knew that he is yogi of yogi so they would accept it but uh, some of them started asking questions and we know that the first book that came out 1928 it came out 1927 basically is the mother which is shurbind's letters on the mother uh then i am sure uh, it was providential people would have been wanting to know who is she shivendra has written a letter but still you know one one would want to know what what is her understanding of yoga they have read the arya has been published 
but as we know it's not easy to uh, understand the arya and that time now we are so lucky because all this is available in book form in a print and it makes a big difference because we hear we read again and again but and time spirit also has changed but during that time it was a new thought altogether so what are mothers use on yoga so just like arjun was inspired by shri krishna i suppose Uh, mother would meet some of these disciples that time they were about 50 to 100 so i don't know how many people used to be present usually they were small number at different places one story i have heard is uh, they used to go on a drive near oroville and sit that seems a bit picturesque but quite likely i have heard another story which is uh, more authentic in pavitra das room which is uh, you know uh, they would sit together and somebody will put a question to the mother and from there started a trail of conversations held once weekly from april to august <coughs> 1929 so this is the 1929 part then of course there is the 1930 and 31 part which were done separately so this 1929 part has this historical background now most of the questions were asked by this british woman who was mother's friend called datta so that's why this background so it uh, i mean when i read them i am i remember it it could be if i may say so uh, can be considered as the mother's geeta of course geeta is song uh, but there is in it a charm and a poetry and the beauty is that if you read through this 1929 book i have often recommended to several people for many uh, i mean the first book that i would carry with me that want to know about integral yoga read this book if somebody wants to know in one word and it's not a compilation it's mother's words so everything one needs to know essential about the integral yoga except for one thing and that's because divine humility she doesn't say open to me <laughs> she says open to the divine <laughs> but that's because she is you know we must always know shirvinda has already said that you know who is she but she doesn't say that that is something so interesting that she doesn't abrogate to herself the position of guruhood or divine mother shobinda has said so she could easily <coughs> command people but she showed by a living example what it means to be uh, a true yogin who is in the service of the divine who is moved by the love of the divine she didn't need any of these things we know i mean to speak of her accomplishments would be like uh, the babel of a child and maybe one day we'll talk about it uh, as part of the glimpses uh, when we approach 150th year of the mother but right now let's plunge into this book and the very first question is very interesting because uh, it settles down many things <clears throat> the question that has been asked to the mother will you say something to us about yoga that's what we want to know so we have all kinds of things in our head but the mother orients us first of all what do you mean by yoga why do you want the yoga for so she says what do you want the yoga for to get power to attain to peace and calm to serve humanity all of them seem like very valid purposes lot of people say we want peace people even use the word they don't use the word power but there is an ambition hidden inside to become a spiritual guru or 
whatever. There are many things. Power is a very general word that Shurabindo uh, mother has used. Someone asked the asked Shurabindo, what does she mean by power? She said she has used in a general way. Some people may like to be, you know, like an intermediary between Shurabindo and the mother and others. So power includes all these things. And then to help humanity, to serve humanity. So here we should be very clear. We are not here to serve humanity. We are here to serve the divine. This is a very important distinction. Even this idea of helping humanity, this too was asked to Shurabindo. Mother says that, you know, uh, helping humanity is a form of ego. So what does it mean? He says you, should, you can become channels of the divine mother which helps humanity. It's like you become a channel of the divine, then it reaches out and people are helped. But if you do it with the idea that I am helping humanity, then that is where the ego comes in. So he has clarified, we are not here to serve humanity. And this is uh, very well known. One of Shivindo's early writings in, I think, 1913, it was published. One of the first books, apart from Yogic Sadhan, was Yoga and Its Objects. Where Shivindo says this, you know, to serve humanity or live for humanity. And then he corrected it later on. That it is, we are here to live for the divine. Now, living for the divine, serving the divine is the highest and greatest help and service one can give to humanity. Because as long as I am in ignorance, I can't be of any service. I can give food, I can give shelter. Humanity has been doing it. But th- is that the real problem of humanity? The real problem is something else. And according to sp- spiritual thought, the real problem is ignorance. The real problem is ego. And the real problem is desire. These are the three bonds of Sunashepa in the story. Ego in the mind, with the mind development, the ego, I am an ego, that individuality comes in of ego individuality, not the true. And of course, the vital, tied with desires in a hundred ways. And the physical, obscurity, ignorance, inertia, tamas, call it whatever. So these are the three bonds that tie us. And so long as humanity remains tied in these bonds, you can have the highest ideal, the greatest of religions, it's not going to change a dot. More likely than not, it will be changed into something else, which is its very opposite. As we see in religions, as we see in ideologies, starting with very great idea. So that's why Shobindo's whole emphasis of yoga is neither personal mukti, though it is important, unless we are liberated, we can't help become a true instrument, but a spiritualization of mankind. Spiritual evolution, but that comes much later. Right now, she says, if what do you want the yoga for? To get power, to attain, to peace and calm, to serve humanity. Now comes the hard hitter. None of these motives is sufficient to show that you are meant for the path. If any of these things, and one can add, to have some experiences. People often, you know, what experiences I am getting? Now she gives what is the real question. The question you are to answer is this. People often ask, am I on the path, meant for the path? So we have to look inside what is our aspiration. And it's not a question of telling somebody. One has to look inside. So she is asking us, the question you are to answer is this. Do you want the yoga for the sake of the divine? What does it mean? Is the divine the supreme fact of your life? So much so that it is simply impossible for you to do without it. I can only remember that beautiful example of Sri Ramakrishna that 
you, a woman who has got water from the well is holding the, um, the jar on top of the head and a baby in another hand and she is <laughs> talking to the women. But all the time her attention is, you know, she is focusing that not a drop should fall, water should fall. She is attending to everything. So, everything is there. But without the divine, do we, we have to look inside. Is there any existence we can conceive of for ourselves to start with, without the divine? Is he the supreme fact of our life? That's what she's saying. She's not saying, withdrawing into an ascetic cave. Everything is there. But is that the supreme fact? She's using the word fact. Or is it still a vague idea, thought, conception, imagination? No. Fact is the divine true and real, without whom it is impossible to live. Do you feel that your very raison, the etri, is the divine reason? I may have wrongly pronounced the French. <laughs> but do you feel that your very, I am translating, reason is the divine? And without it, there is no meaning in your existence. But if the divine is not there, would life not only be the same, but would it really be living? Maybe the body would live, or perhaps it may not, but can we conceive of that? If so, then only can it be said that you have a call for the path. Period. <laughs> call for the path, everybody asks. Call for the path is, do we want the divine for the sake of the divine? It can take several forms, serving the divine, loving the divine, knowing the divine, being nearness to the divine, at its highest union with the divine, at its still highest than the highest, integral union with the divine. Transformation so that there is a complete manifestation of the divine, whatever it is, but divine. That's what is important. This is the first thing necessary, aspiration for the divine. If the aspiration is there, there is call for the path. As simple as that. Nobody else is here to tell us, are you on the path or not? If we have the aspiration, then there is a call for the path. <clears throat> okay, what is the next thing to be done? The next thing you have to do is to tend it. So it's like a fire. Now fire initially is very small. It's a small flame. If we allow it to, you know, if you take a small flame, carry a, see when candle, people light with a matchstick, they make sure that fans are off and there are some hands guarding it so that it doesn't go off. But if the fire is, flame is big, then it doesn't matter. So initially, one has to tend the fire. This is a pure Vedic truth she is revealing. Tend the fire and that contains many things. But also, we have to increase the fire, tend the fire, how to nurture it, how to nourish, to keep it always alert and awake and living. Which means not that sometime we sit and meditate and have an aspiration. And this is something which can go on. And for that, what is required is concentration. Concentration upon the divine with a view to an integral and absolute Consecration to its will and purpose. So, Shivinda was asked what is on, on, uh, on this regard. He has been asked this question in different ways. But one of them was what is concentration and what is meditation. So, he says concentration is a single pointed pointedness. The whole awareness has become single pointed on an object, an idea or an image or a name. 
meditation is a very general thing it's it's a mind which is running around one idea but in several ways but concentration is one pointedness so what should be the best idea that mother is giving us and that best idea is within integral and absolute consecration to the divine to its will and purpose so purpose is the manifestation of the divine and will so that we can obey and become channels of the divine will in every way <clears throat> so how to concentrate where to concentrate now next concentrate in the heart the center of the chest it's not the anatomical heart anywhere the concentration will automatically go in the center of the chest concentrate in the heart enter into it go within and deep and far as far as you can gather all the strings of your consciousness that are spread abroad roll them up and take a plunge and sink down so what are these strings they are strings of attachments to ideas forms images people so through these strings our mind is spread out and like a puppet play when we sit to concentrate or when we walk and concentrate these strings pull us so mind goes there so take those strings this my time with the divine but it has to carry on whole day <laughs> but to start with this is nothing else so pull all these strings gather them like you know sleeve one gathers and then to take a plunge here if fire is burning there in the deep quietude of the heart <clears throat> before one enters into the psychic depths one experiences peace and quietude many other things besides that means one is entered into the psychic atmosphere does one see the fire well if one has the subtle vision one sees it but it's not necessary that everybody will see a fire some people start looking for a fire inside well this was asked to shirvin oh i have not seen the fire it may take several forms but to the subtlest vision it is a fire that's why we see in the vedas but it's not the outer fire it's a subtle fire it's like a flame which is burning inside this is the akhand jyoti this is the jyot the flame that we have to light inside and not this that we light outside with all the politicians around as you know and everybody is having a uh, say that who will be the first one i have seen this also as if there is a matter of great prestige who first lights the fire and who all are present and there is a photo op all this is nonsense let me be very clear <laughs> if the inner flame is lit there is a very beautiful passage in savitri <clears throat> in moments when the inner lamps are lit and life's cherished guests are left outside our spirits our spirit sits alone and speaks with its cups see the same thought inner lamps are lit and life's cherished guests are left outside so the consciousness strings are pulled back you stay out maybe after some time they will roll back but we'll try that they don't but at least this is my moment with the divine 
roll them up and take a plunge and sink down. A fire is burning there in the deep quietude of the heart. It is the divinity in you, your true being. Hear its voice, follow its dictates. Again, it doesn't, people are looking for a voice with the human ear. It's a suggestion, very gentle. A nudge, one can practice, experience it, feel it inside. So it's very interesting that when she says this, expresses it, uh, I mean, again, as I said, to speak of mother's realization is the babble of a child. But remember Isha Upanishad, one of the greatest Upanishads. In fact, Shurabindo speaks of it as the greatest Upanishad. And what does it say toward the end? Agne Naya Supatha Supatha Rai O flame, lead me through the true path to the felicity. And then it says something else. I submit myself to thee. Look at what your mother is telling us here. Hear its voice, follow its dictates. It's straight, the Upanishadic verse comes alive. Several places we will see, as in Collected Works of Mother, Volume 2, we read that, which is, in my understanding, is the Mother's uh, Gayatri Mantra, but lifted to what heights? So, there are other centers of concentration. Lest people say, oh, but there is this center, that center. We have read all the yoga books. Everybody believes he has become a yogi because one has read the books. Uh, For example, one above the crown and another between the eyebrows. So we heard about the eyebrows. But concentration above the crown, Shubhindra and the mother speak about it. And also one can concentrate on all these together. So she says, each has its own efficacy and will give you a particular result. But the central being lies in the heart and from the heart proceed all central movements, all dynamism and urge for transformation and power of realization. So the central being, the divine presence is in the heart. From there it, of course, somebody is more probably in the head, one may find that easier. That's a different matter. But this is where she advises us or what shall I say? She is guiding us to concentrate on the divine presence within. She has given us a very secular image, the fire. <laughs> because she knows the times that are going to come. Any image will become subject to. But of course for us and later on she has also confirmed on the mother's presence, divine presence. We can take the help of her form, luminous form or Shirobindo's form. But here she has given us a very wide, straight from the Vedic Rishis and a true image because that's how the divinity within manifests itself. That's how the Vedic Rishis have worshipped. Okay, so this what? So the next question is, what is one to do to prepare oneself for the yoga? Okay, maybe everybody is not ready. What one should do? Again, we will see a very interesting parallel from one of the Indian traditions. What is the first yoga that Sri Krishna teaches Arjuna? Buddhi yoga. What is Buddhi yoga? It's learning to discern between the true and the false. It's not as easy as it seems. We jump at appearances between right and wrong. And it is not about right and wrong. It's about true and false. Right and wrong are moral uh, things. 
they have their place and mother will speak of that also but true and false so that discernment the gita teaches before you take up the practice of yoga first thing is discernment how the mother puts it very beautifully what is the what is one to do to prepare oneself for the yoga to be conscious first of all we are conscious of only an insignificant portion of our being for the most part we are unconscious we are not even conscious of our thoughts if somebody suddenly says what were you thinking what was i thinking <laughs> what was he thinking this is how we are it is this unconsciousness that keeps us down to our unregenerate nature why because it allows all kinds of forces to come in and move us we are not even aware to one who is conscious that's why sometimes just being aware this is term used in certain buddhist type of meditation and it is so true but we think normally being aware is being aware with the superficial mind to be truly aware one will become aware of the motives forces that are entering creating restlessness <clears throat> all kinds of suggestions it is through unconsciousness that the undivine forces enter into us and make us their slaves you are to be conscious of yourself you must awake to your nature and movements you must know why and how you do things or feel or think them you must understand your motives and impulses the forces hidden and apparent that move you hidden and apparent apparent is the immediate justification that the mind gives hidden is when we look behind apparent is i am doing mother's work <laughs> hidden is ambition could be ambition anything so app apparent could be a justification i got angry because somebody told this to me hidden i have ego i got hurt <laughs> real reason <laughs> i got insulted so there are always uh, real reasons are hidden inside a cover and there is this description in the vedas of these fellows who cover up they are called coverers pani vritras and what are their fanciful names <laughs> not fanciful they so one of them is they get covers it doesn't let you see but it lets you see in others the defects <laughs> but it doesn't let you see in your own so one has to remove these covers with great sincerity is needed that's why sincerity is so important at least a mental honesty without which we can't advance on the path in fact you must as it were take to pieces the entire machinery of your being once you are conscious it means that you can distinguish and sift things you can see which are the forces that pull you down and which help once mother told to champaklal she says don't boast and he says what <laughs> boasting then he understood what it meant see this is the difference between a great yogi he understood another time she said what champaklal you are not trying wanting to go away or something like this hey mother me no way <laughs> but then when mother says something there is within it a very profound sense that's how she prepares us we may give a very comfortable explanation because we don't like to see the shadow in us and then one day she tears okay one by one all the parts are shredded so she is asking us that we should <clears throat> and when you know the right from the wrong the true from the false the divine from the undivine you are to act strictly up to your knowledge this will have to be patient the duality will present itself at every step 
and at every step you will have to make your choice you will have to be patient and persistent and vigilant sleepless as the adept say you must always refuse to give any chance whatever to the undivine against the divine so <clears throat> then there is another this that conversation of 7th april then there is another conversation where she speaks of two paths of yoga the path of surrender and the path of tapasya so people often make as if they are two uh, i mean mutually different not disconnected surrender means no tapasya <laughs> and tapasya means uh, whatever it means <laughs> people have their own ideas sitting with a kamandalu with a you know tikati lak and you know <laughs> or living poultry in a poultry way in a bear way <laughs> tapasya is all energizing of the faculties towards a spiritual goal concentrated energy of spiritual endeavor is tapasya nothing to do with what we look outside and when shobindu was asked what is the difference between the two he says what is meant here is that there is a tapasya which goes on when you have surrendered so surrender is common we can't do without surrender without surrender and there is another tapasya where we don't surrender we do everything with our own effort that's where the mother is drawing a distinction she is not saying if you surrender no effort is required she is saying that there is a kind of effort which goes on when we surrender why because we have surrendered to the mother now this not something which is uh, i should be doing this not how i should be thinking this not how i should be feeling so there is an effort but that effort is the result of surrender to the mother but which tapasya she is referring to when she says the path of tapasya where you hold with your own effort you fall down you break you will see it you will see in many modern neo what shall i say even people who talk about mother and shurbindo they give you practices techniques but don't talk about the mother giving to the mother service to the mother so what happens you will do meditation you will do this way but you are not giving yourself to the mother you can do it mother says but it's like a baby monkey if you fall you fall miserably how much can we climb and in this path surrender is the mainstay she will say that also so yoga means of union with the divine then she speaks about difficulties of yoga particularly she points out about these disordered sexual impulses excessive sexual impulses and ambition they two stand at the same level as far as the yoga is concerned and especially she speaks about ambition if you have ambition don't touch this fire it will burn you and it will uncover and she gives example of yogis who try to do miracles and all these things so she says yoga means union with the divine very simple straight the definition and the union not these modern definition yoga is mind and body in harmony divine is shut out there is no yoga without the divine all these modern definitions we'll find yoga is mind and body perfectly aligned <laughs> try doing it <laughs> and the union is affected through offering it is founded on the offering of of yourself to the divine in the beginning so how do i start mother in the beginning you start by making this offering in a general way as the once of for all you say i am the servant of the divine my life is given absolutely to the divine all my efforts are for the realization of the divine life 
But that is only the first stop, step. It's like waking up in the morning, good morning mother, I offer my day to you. May all my activities be governed by you. May my destiny be governed by you. May all my movements be directed by you. May my life be given to you. May use me as your servant, slave, tool, instrument, channel, whatever. That's okay. She says you can start from there. But that is only the first step. For this is not sufficient. When the resolution has been taken, when you have decided that the whole of your life shall be given to the divine, you have still at every moment to remember it and carry it out in all the details of your existence. This has nothing to do with any place. (laughs) One can be here and be far from the divine. It is a question of inner attitude, inner state. So what is the next thing? This is what you have to do to carry out your general offering in detailed offerings. What a beautiful way, like holding a child's finger, she is teaching us. Live constantly in the presence of the divine. Otherwise, people, how do I offer myself? Oh, mother, I am, I am taking this second step, offer to you first step, you'll fall down probably, you know, just be careful. This is not what is meant by offering. The sense of the divine presence, that it is she who is there with us. You are taking a walk, you are eating food. In the beginning, we can do it as an offering. I am going for a walk. Finish the walk. Gratitude. I am eating this food. But obviously, it's not like every thought, feeling you are constantly offering. It, what it means is to be always, she is present. And it makes a very big difference. Automatically, everything is going to her. Many things will automatically drop away from nature. So she is saying, live constantly in the presence of the divine. Live in the feeling that it is this presence which moves you and is doing everything you do. Offer all your movements to it. It is an inner automatic process. Not only every mental action, every thought and feeling, but even the most ordinary and external actions, such as eating. When you eat, you must feel that it is the divine who is eating through you. So it's a question of an inner state, an attitude, a feeling, maybe an aspiration. So every time one is eating, what a joyous thing it would be. That you know, you are feeding this food to the divine. Automatically you will see, you will become hygienic by the way. Because you won't like to feed him all dirt and bacteria and all that. You will automatically, many kind of foods will drop away. Because you are feeding the mother. It's a tremendous powerful practice. When you are walking, walking with the divine mother. Anybody can be with you. But as far as you are concerned, mother is there. Many things we will not utter because mother is present with us. Many places we will not go because she is with us. And wherever we go, we will always be surrounded by her protection and grace. When you can thus gather all your movements into the one life, means everything that we are doing, then you have in you unity instead of division. No longer is one part given to the divine, while the rest remains in in its ordinary ways and grossed in ordinary things. Your entire life is taken up and integral transformation is gradually realized in you. She is giving us an assurance. If you do this way, it will be realized. What will be realized? An integral transformation. In the integral yoga, the integral life down even to the smallest detail has to be transformed, to be divinized. There is nothing here that is insignificant, nothing that is indifferent. You cannot say, when I am meditating 
reading philosophy or listening to these conversations, I will be in this condition of an opening towards the light and call for it. But when I go out to walk to see friends or see friends, I can allow myself to forget all about it. That's not integral yoga. It's a continuous thing. That's how unity is created. And she says, if you persist like that, things will remain untransformed. <clears throat> then there is a very interesting passage on surrender and people ask this question, consecration, surrender, offering, what are these things? So she says, there are many wrong ideas current about surrender. Most people seem to look upon surrender as an abdication of the personality. I have given myself to the mother. What does it mean? Ah, I have nothing to do. That's not surrender. That's <laughs> or the surrender of the automaton is like a donkey to become like that. I have surrendered. Now everything I must do, I must keep in mind that I am hers. I am given to her. So she says, but that is a grievous error. This is what she have been the cautions against. Tamasic surrender, refusing to do anything. I have given to the mother, that's okay. And many people even, in the class, someone once told the mother. Mother said, what do you want to know? Someone said, surrender. So the person said, surrender we finished last time. <laughs> and mother says, oh, <laughs> you know all about surrender. What about practicing surrender? So she says, for the individual is meant to manifest one aspect of the divine consciousness. And the expression of its characteristic nature is what creates its, his personality. Then, by taking the right attitude toward the divine, this personality is purified of all the influences of the lower nature. Somebody has to express either through speech, through hands, through different kinds of works. Some have to express love from the heart. It could be anything. Uh, individual expression, tremendous service through the vital energy, through the body. So in that case, all these movements of ignorance, lower nature, which falsify, which divert, which distract, which enter and mingle into the cup meant to hold the wine of God, all that has to be detected and removed. Because now this vessel is given to the divine. I can take it like that, that if mother has given us a, a vessel, Mother's cup, let us say. So how will I keep it? Will I be careless about it? This cup is mother's. I have to be ten times, hundred times more careful. Because this cup is the mother's. So when the personality is given to the mother, it's not abdication. But it means now we have to understand this is given to the mother. Not a single wrong feeling should come in a heart which must radiate her love. Not a single wrong, selfish, degrading thought should come in a mind that must manifest a light. Not a single lower movement should come in a life which is dedicated to the divine service. And of course for the body also, the same holds true. Then by taking the right attitude toward the divine, this personality is purified of all the influences of the lower nature which diminish and distort it. And it becomes more strongly personal, more itself, more complete. It's not like traditional yoga. You come out of the zone of ignorance and realize the divine. It is replace ignorance with knowledge. Replace darkness with light. That is the difficult part. Challenging part. <clears throat> 
Its character is more precisely marked than it could possibly be when mixed with all the obscurity and ignorance. So, personality becomes more and more crystallized. Crystallized not in the way the mind does it, but in the sense it is marked out for the divine service. Whatever the divine has chosen to manifest. One can't choose these things mentally. And he must first give up all that by distorting, limiting and obscuring the true nature, fetters and debases and discovers and disfigures the true personality. He must throw from him whatever belongs to the ignorant lower movements of the ordinary man and his blind, limping ordinary life. How can we uh, uh, you know, claim to be servants of truth if we are constantly speaking lies and so on and so forth? How can we afford to hold her in the heart and worship her in the heart when our heart is full of, you know, all kinds of maligning things, ill will, hatred, jealousies and God knows what. So they have to be removed if the heart is to become. We we read that, Shubhinda says that beauty and harmony in thought and feelings, beauty and harmony in life and surrounding. This is the way to worship her. And this is so important, especially for everyone. But Sometimes we take it for granted that, say, because we have gone to a temple, I have done my duty. Because I have gone to the ashram and done pranam, I have done my duty. Well, it's good as a beginning. It's not either or. But start by living the yoga. And living the yoga is where offering, surrender, all these things are required. And first of all, he must give up his desires. What are we asked to give up when we come? Mother, shall I give my money? Mother, first. <laughs> give up attachment to money. <laughs> you may give up money, but the greed may still be there. <laughs> give up desire. Sometimes outer measures are important. They help. But otherwise, most important is give up desires. For desire is the most obscure and the most obscuring movement of the door nature. And then she says something very, very beautiful. I have not heard this way any of the yogis describe desire. Desires are motions of weakness and ignorance. Why? Because we want something, we want something. What a weakness, what a slavery. If we want something, that means we are enslaved to it. Desires are motions of weakness and ignorance. And they keep you chained to your weakness and to your ignorance. So beautifully she so it carries on and on and there is something interesting she speaks about the difference between morality and spirituality. So very often we think it is the same, they are not same. But also equally, we feel that because spirituality is uh, not morality or beyond morality, so a spiritual man can do anything. It doesn't matter because he is not supposed to be moral. <laughs> Mother explains so beautifully. She is uh, removing every kind of justifications we may provide. Morality is not divine or of the divine. It is of man and human. Morality takes for its basic element a fixed division into the good and the bad. But this is an arbitrary notion. It takes things that are relative and tries to impose them at absolutes. Things which have no ultimate value, but because they are social constructs or... Because she says, if you go to different places, you will see different constructs. If you go to different epochs of time, I mean, how many of us know for... I'm just taking an example. Guru Gobind Singh, one of the greatest gurus of the, the Khalsa Panth. He, he, he had married thrice. 
You talk about it, look very immoral, but he is a deeply spiritual person. But equally, this cannot become a justification. <laughs> so she is reminding us that morality changes for this good and this bad differ in differing climates and times, epochs and countries. The moral notion goes so far as to say that there are good desires and bad desires. If you have your wife, whatever you do with your wife is okay, good, because you are moral. But the same desire with someone else is not right, wrong. You know, that's how a moral person judges life. But what does the mother say? The moral notion says that. But the spiritual life, this is the important part, but the spiritual life demands that you should reject desire altogether. It doesn't matter who, what, when, where, why. Reject desire altogether. You can't just get angry on your child and say, hey, he's my child. I have the right to get angry. All this is. Its law is that you must cast aside all movements that draw you away from the divine. This was asked to Shivinda. Is physical relation okay in marriage? He said, no, it has the same effect. It will degrade you. If it is your wife or whatever, I mean. Because it has the degrading effect. It Again, this is not to people catch things with the wrong way and start getting into guilt. There is a process and a way. We are not talking of that. That's revealed as we go by and by. And the process, as he has said, is persistent offering to live with the presence that the Divine Mother is there. And we will see that how things begin to change. You must reject them not because they are bad in themselves, for they may be good for another man. Or in another sphere, but because they belong to the impulses or forces that, being unillumined and ignorant, stand in the way of your approach to the divine. All desires. So don't start, uh, you know, telling this to people. There was once a seminar where somebody said uh, prevention of AIDS. It was, you know, but organized by uh, some spiritual people who had turned to Mother and Shirobindo, and they wanted to teach uh, people the practice of Brahmacharya and celibacy. <laughs> Please don't do that. They are normal human beings. This is not meant for anybody and everybody. They'll go crazy. They'll go mad. So it's something for you. Those who are seeking the divine, there are things that stand in the way. But for ordinary humanity, if you give a truth, but they don't even know what is what it can be. Uh, they'll just have things inside and first call for the path. Offering, then all this comes as we move along. All desires, whether good or bad, come within this description. For desire itself arises from an illumined, unillumined vital being. So this is the, again, she goes back to desire. So what is surrender? Surrender is the decision taken to hand over the responsibility of your life to the divine. Without this decision, nothing is at all possible. One may read Shurabindo, one may, you know, talk about Shurabindo. And one may believe that because I am living here or not living here, even there is an egoism. I have seen people, oh, I don't live in the ashram, people who live in the ashram. It's not about living here or there or anywhere. Because ego is, can find, sometimes there is an ego of this also. So, it's not about that. It is about, have I given my life to the divine that you are the one who are my everything? If you do not surrender, the yoga is entirely out of the question. That's it, very clearly. 
everything else comes naturally after it for the whole process starts with the surrender you can surrender either through knowledge or through devotion or she is describing you may have a strong intuition that the divine alone is the truth and a luminous conviction that without the divine you cannot manage <laughs> or you may have a spontaneous feeling that this line is the only way of being happy a strong psychic desire to belong exclusively to the divine i do not belong to myself you say and give up the responsibility of your being to the truth then comes self offering here i am a creature of various qualities good and bad if we judge and if we divide life into two we'll never be able to do because all of us are very good people in our own eyes <laughs> dark and enlightened i offer myself as i am to you take me up with all my ups and downs conflicting impulses and tendencies do whatever you like with me so this is how the yoga proceeds how beautiful simple she is describing so this is how we create a unification similarly she speaks about renunciation this is now in the later part so people ask or they want to see renunciates and by renunciation they believe a particular kind of dress you are wearing this is how people understand renunciation but uh, if they see somebody living fairly comfortably <laughs> in a house they believe and this is so far removed from even the deep indian ethos and the mystic sense of things none of the mystics did that truly if we look at the great ones luminous ones it was not where they lived and they didn't live that was not important they knew that this world what it is why do people need to leave because they feel that they value it something special but they know even in the best of material conditions they cannot ever be happy because this is not what things should be so they don't need to renounce and make a big thing oh i renounced what have we renounced so mother says there is in books a lot of talk about renunciation that you must renounce possessions renounce attachments renounce desires but i have come to the conclusion that so long as you have to renounce anything you are not on this path why for so long as you are not thoroughly disgusted with things as they are and have to make an effort to reject them you are not ready for the supramental realization when we realize life is so imperfect so limited you may be in the as i said best of condition but you realize this must change and the way to change is what mother and shobinda has given to us so long as we are satisfied even ideas have to be renounced ideologies religions all these things which ultimately you know if you are satisfied with the religion be satisfied with it if you are satisfied with an ideology believe that it can change this world go ahead with it <laughs> till one day one will realize so she says that that is why i do not give importance to the idea of renunciation to renounce means that you are to give up what you value that you have to discard what you think is worth keeping so when we have things we should take it as mother's gifts if they go equally we understand it doesn't mean we should be careless with them because they are mother's gifts we should be careful whether it be wealth or material things we have to take care because they are given by the mother 
But if they, we don't have to just throw it away. But when they go away, we have to equally not, oh, this was something very big. As long as faith and aspiration are there, those who have realized divine presence is there, nothing really matters. So this is how this entire volume goes. And I'll just close with one of our very interesting conversations. The other day I was speaking about Sri work. And honestly, we talk big about whether the work was done or not. Even if nobody knew about Sri the work would have been done. All the rest is add-ons. <laughs> like when you go to a, a place, uh, let's say you go to have darshan of a deity. So what is the most important thing? You have darshan. What do you get as add-ons? You get a tilak, you get a arati, you get prashadam, you hear some chants. All this is add-on. The real thing is the darshan. I am speaking of it in the religious sense. So, Shurabindo, even if nobody knew this work he came to do, he would do it. What is the work? She is explaining to us beautifully. The consciousness is like a ladder at each great approach. There has been one great being capable of adding one more step to the ladder and reaching a place where the ordinary consciousness had never been. This is the birth of some of the great religions. The problem is, people stand at that step and do not want to go to the other. As Mother said, in the eternity of becoming, each avatar adds a new rung to the ladder. But men have a tendency to worship the avatars of the past in opposition. That is okay. But in opposition to the avatar of the future. So he says, this is the fate of all avatars who came before and Shobindo also meets the same fate. But tomorrow will show that you know his work is done and uh, whatever he promised, they have been fulfilled. So, what is that the avatar comes to do? So here she again says something very interesting. It is possible to attain a high level and get completely out of the material consciousness. But then one does not retain the ladder. This is where we see some of the great mystics and saints who pass beyond. Some may stay for a while, help others to climb up to that ladder which has been the highest open. The door was already open. They learned how to climb there. But that's it. They don't come down. But then one does not retain the latter. Whereas the great achievement of the great epochs of the universe has been the capacity to add one more step to the ladder without losing contact with the materials. So who is the avatar? He can go up and down at will and he adds the new ladder. The capacity to reach the highest and at the same time connect the top with the bottom instead of letting a kind of emptiness cut off all connection between the different planes. To go up and down and join the top to the bottom is the whole secret of realization and that is the work of the avatar. This is what Sri did on 24th November 1926, Siddhi. And then he was doing it for the entire... That is why it is descent. Overmind descent, yes, but it opened the door and he didn't need, after that the supramental force was several times descending in him and there are so many instances, that's a whole story. If nobody knew it didn't matter because once that is established in the course of time it will unfold. But then being compassion incarnate and the mother being love incarnate said, okay, come, some more human beings, let's walk together, <laughs> sing the glory. 
the work of achieving a continuity which permits one to go up and down and bring into the material what is above is done inside the consciousness he who is meant to do it the avatar even if he were shut up in a prison and saw nobody and never moved out still would he do the work because it is a work in the consciousness a work of connection between the super mind and the material being that's why we see that mother and shubhendra were never keen on starting an ashram or anything and shubhendra even wrote that that you think mother's work is only to just start an ashram and but it is an important work there is no doubt about it because human representatives how they will receive what is here to give so it will shorten the period all this is there they were the ones who were embodiment of the supramental consciousness and they were sharing it with humanity before it could manifest in the earth at large they saw the reactions and how people responded and we know all that is is a whole story but they didn't need us for completing this work a work of connection he does not need to be recognized but because humanity came so spontaneously the whole thing grew up that's how shubhendra said there was never any plan let me start an ashram it just humanity came so it was part of the great divine plan and it was taken up just like when the school started certain problems which were to be taken much later on the mother said we took them much earlier but it's okay in a way it is better because we will uh, though we'll be delayed by 30 years but in the end it will enrich because otherwise ashram was initially a very different place where people hardly you know each one was like an individual hardly communicating much with each other but with the coming of children now children laugh sing dance everything <laughs> so they change anyway that's a different story <clears throat> once however the connection is made it must have its effect in the outward world in the form of a new creation beginning with a model town and ending with a perfect world and we know this the plot seat plot laboratory the model town is orville in the making and ending with the whole world they are three are interconnected the ashram orville and the world so this is how the work proceeds but the fundamental thing about the supramental consciousness which is the main work that has been done that would have been done regardless of anything and in that case even if after thousands of years because this is the new consciousness it will manifest just like once the mind manifested nobody knows who were the first uh, mental beings but mother speaks of that she remembers an earthly paradise and she was there and shobindu were there and she even speaks about where it happened the mental consciousness there must have been apes or other but over a period of time now all of us are mentalized so this is how super minds and the supramental evolution is a thing decreed inevitable what they want is shortening the path making it smooth making it sunlit because it's a tremendous consciousness if we are not ready not prepared we could be blown up or it may take a long time or it may take the pressure may be too much for man to bear so human instrumentality or human coming together makes it a little more quicker and as human beings begin to change in few few samples then it will have a tendency to spread automatically from a 
place, to a township, and to the whole of humanity. So there are many such things, including the supramental body, what it will be like, and what really is the next future, conversion of the vital, many, many topics. It is the must-read other than the prayers and meditations. If one has to pick up two books of the mother to read as and keep as companions, and you know, one doesn't have time, though it is laziness, well... Anyways, if somebody doesn't feel like, okay, tell me two books of the mother that I should read. So my suggestion will be, read prayers and meditations, that is a must like Savitri. And read Conversations of the Mother, Volume 3, 1929-1931. Namaste.